Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this evening. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. It's a beautiful night here in South Dakota. How is it up there? It's been really good, Steve. I actually, I got into, so my i3 adventure has sucked me further. Can you believe it? Sure. So I switched my, I started by switching my personal laptop over to i3, and it, originally it was just going to be kind of a thing I was going to play with at the side, like new technology, like goofing around with stuff, like being a nerd. So started there, but the, <laughs> Then I embarrassingly found myself continually reaching for my personal laptop as I'm doing work things. And I'm like, well, I keep getting distracted at work. I just want to get some work done. And I'd reach for my personal laptop. And about 24 hours into that, I was like, well, this is kind of backwards. If I like i3, maybe I should just use i3 everywhere. And so I last week, I think I talked about a little bit. I blew my work laptop away and put i3 on there. And I mentioned offhandedly that there's some things that surprised me because i3 obviously not a desktop environment it's just a window manager so it leaves very critical things like configuring the monitor up to you and i said i was originally doing that with a bunch of scripts with xorg and I had some people reach out to me and go you moron if you're using i3 on endeavor a rander is available to you and so indeed i started playing with it and it is it's installed by default and gives you a graphical interface for being able to configure your monitor display i still submit to you that in 2023, if you're plugging a laptop into an external display, I feel like there should be a more, I don't know, direct way to turn that monitor on, all the rest of it. I will say this, though. It's very consistent. Once you set up a monitor layout, it works every freaking time. And with KDE, inside of the display settings, you can choose remember for this specific configuration or apply this for all monitor configurations. And the nice thing about the remember this for a specific monitor configuration is it somehow remembers like the UUID of the Thunderbolt dock you're using. And so, or maybe the uh, the ID of the display ports, other end of the display devices that are at the end of the display port. But it will remember in this dock, I have two vertical monitors and one horizontal one. In this dock, I've got two horizontal, so on and so forth. It doesn't work 100% of the time. It works like 95% of the time, but it doesn't work 100% of the time. What I will give a Rander is it works 100% of the time. The other thing I wanted to provide an update on. So last week, the federal government in the United States conducted a nationwide emergency alert test of all of the various devices. So every radio station and TV station played the burp, 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 beep, and then gave a message saying that it was only a test and had there been an emergency, instructions would have followed. As part of that, the FCC required all mobile carriers to carry that emergency message. So the day before the test, I opened up my, Salix, my Samsung Galaxy S10 that's running stock, whatever Android ships with my S10, you know, the US version that I can't flash to anything else, unlike the world version that you can install other operating systems. I digress. So I open up that phone and I set all of the settings 
to make sure that I don't get any of these alerts. I opened up my Graphene OS phone running on the Pixel 6. Same settings on both devices. Test day rolls around. 1.20 p.m. Central Time rolls around. Galaxy S10 fires, even though it's set not to. Graphene OS does exactly what I asked it to. So I don't know what to take of that, Steve. I think the only thing I can make of it is that the government feels like they still have the right to tap me on the shoulder because, I don't know, I guess I don't own my phone. That seems to be the way. I saw a bunch of um, interesting replies on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. about how they were really uncomfortable with the idea that the government can just like ping your personal device like that. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. And And, you know, it's one thing if... Okay, it's bad enough that you incorporate this into my phone. It's bad enough that you turn it on by default. But I was giving the news guy at KNOX a hard time about this, and I was like, oh, the government owned my phone. He's like, well, you don't want those alerts? You don't want to know when something bad is happening? Well, yes, I do. I would just like the ability to turn it on or off. I mean, I paid for the dang thing. You know, I don't think that's unreasonable. Steve, you I don't want those alerts. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I'm fine with, like, the... Hey, the world's coming to an end kind of alert. Like if there's a tornado, if there is, well, I don't know, some life ending event that I want to know about. You know what I don't want to know about? The 93 year old man from Bismarck, North Dakota, six and a half hours away from my hometown that wandered off and everybody's looking for him. That alert I don't need here in Grand Forks, North Dakota. I'll, I'll do just fine without the silver alerts and, and so on and so forth. So it's like some of them are okay. A lot of them are just nuisance. But at the end of the day, I'm that difficult child to raise. If you don't allow me to turn it off, then I'm just then I'm going to throw a fit about it. And, and I, like I have to have the ability to say yes or no. Otherwise, I feel like I'm being forced into it. I don't like coercive relationships, Steve. Well, so my strategy is just turn it off because someone will know like i'm because i know that i'm in the super 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 minority of people that care about this just like not carrying my phone somebody's gonna have it other people have mobiles i'll walk into a room and 95 out of 97 people's phones are gonna go off relatively Uh quickly and then i'll know what's wrong and i didn't have to do it (laughs) so steve i understand you had a win this week with simple tab groups yeah so i've been uh I'm, i'm on a new project at work really really enjoying it actually but it it has required me to have more interaction with the web browser than i've had to have in the past like i'm pretty judicious about closing tabs generally speaking i only have i don't know eight or nine tabs open and even that is like once i can no longer see most of the tab it starts to really irritate me but i've had to have so many remote connections open for this work client where i actually have to have them all open that I was trying to figure out, well, how do I, how do I deal with this? Cause I was, I fell back on old habits and started closing links that I needed to. And then it was like, well, why didn't you get this ping or whatever? I'm like, oh, I closed the VDI that was open on that one or whatever. And so I went hunting around for what can I do in Firefox? And I found simple tab groups. And what I like about this over other tab managers is it essentially works like a, a file folder. So it puts a little icon in your bar, just like every other extension does. But when you click on it, you can make a new tab group and slot your tabs into that. When you click on one, so for example, I have MISC, so miscellaneous, I've got one for OpenShift, I've got Mm -hmm. one for remote management and so on. When I click on like the OpenShift one, it looks like it closes all of the other tabs and just simply shows me the five or six ones that I have open for OpenShift. But they're actually and running. I, and they're actually running. Uh-huh. And oh. I, I like this over the other tab manager because 
essentially all it's doing in the background is hiding literally all the other tabs as opposed to having giant stacks of tabs in on top of one tab so i really like this you know what what is this doing for our memory situation uh you know what i don't actually know it it hasn't really affected me my laptop's got 24 gigs of ram and my desktop's got (laughs) 32 so okay i mean you feel like you're set there i'm pretty good when you, when I combined this with the uh, multi-container account that we, uh, sorry, the multi-account container plugin, we've kind of talked about that before. It's made dealing with multiple clients at the same time so much nicer. It's it's one of those things I said to Noah. I was like, I didn't know I was missing this. <laughs> <laughs> so so if, if somebody is joining who hasn't heard before or we need a memory refresher, what does the multi-account container addition do or add-on do? So it essentially allows you to open up a new tab in a container that you specify so that it Mm. it is isolated. So in my case, I have multiple clients that all have their own Microsoft 365 logins Uh, or whatever. And instead of using different profiles or tons of different browsers or whatever, I have one, two, three, four, five, six different containers for the clients. And then you can essentially slot tabs into that container and they are completely isolated in terms of profile and cookies and all the rest of that. So that's changed your work environment a bit. It has been really nice. That's awesome. You want to get into some feedback? Let's do it. Our first email comes in from Sean. Sean writes in and says, Hey guys, with all your wiring and geeking and tooling, it might be good to say what you've done to protect against electrical surges. I'd like to imagine your home labs. This is step one. Insurance isn't going to cover a lot of your stuff, especially computers, unless you have a special rider. Nothing is going to prevent a direct hit, so to speak, of lightning. I've seen a lot of friends in the neighborhood. Results of a tree and the track of burning roots and electricity took. Absolutely amazing what Mother Nature can do. Within a mile of my house is a TV radio station with a blinking red light. And five big stone throws away is quite literally a water tower. So I'm feeling pretty safe. I use a surge protector for my equipment. What's the minimum jewels you ask your clients to buy if they have equipment? I never fill in the warranty card when I buy a power strip. So your timing of this question is actually quite elegant because it was like two weeks ago or three weeks ago. I had a power surge in my house and I lost some equipment. And at the time I reevaluated my strategy a little bit, but I ultimately landed on the same thing. There is some equipment that is expensive enough that you absolutely want to have on the other side of a UPS, not a, not a surge protector, a UPS. There's a difference. So a surge protector is going to, it has a little circuit breaker in it and it will try to prevent a surge of electricity. The problem is nothing's perfect. The way that a proper UPS will work is the UPS will charge the battery. The battery then will power an AC inverter. The AC inverter then powers your equipment. So, In order for that energy to make that hop and damage your equipment, it would have to transition through the battery, which it's not going to be able to do. So you might take out your UPS. You won't kill all of the equipment behind it, which can be super advantageous. Now, I did the math on it. If you're going to buy a UPS, the UPS cannot cost significantly more than the device. If you're buying, you know, let's say a $1,500 UPS to protect a $60 piece of equipment, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So... I took all of my essential stuff in my basement. All of that runs on a UPS. The rest of it, it's plugged into a surge protector, but it's less than a hundred bucks. If something goes out, 
And I've largely settled on the idea that I'm not willing to, because it's not just buying the UPS, and you got to buy and maintain batteries for it every so often too. I don't really care if I lose a device every so often, but certainly you want to have something in place to protect. Before we dig into the Jules things, so Steve, you take a slightly different approach insofar as I think most of your stuff is on a UPS. Most of my stuff is on a UPS, and I also have a uh, surge protector on each one of my electrical boxes, like the mm. panels in the in the basement. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, I should be really well, uh, really well managed there, just because I've got the newer breakers have the arc fault on them. Mm. Oh, my favorite! Uh, right. And so the arc fault should help. And then there's UPSs behind those. And then, like I said, the the panels themselves each have a, a UP, um, sorry, a surge protector that in theory should cover the entire house, mm-hmm. right? The idea was I got two that are, are identical that should they be needed, they sh- either one of them should cover the entire house. So the one, the idea here is the, if I get a surge from the rooftop, Mm-hmm. for my solar that's going to hit the secondary box first before it hits the main box because that's how it's wired and conversely i didn't want to have any problems coming in from the grid so they each can handle the amount of power coming from the grid just because i bought identical ones you know when he, when sean talks a little bit about a direct hit of lightning he's absolutely right at the end of the day this is like this is this is like problem one that ham radio operators deal with oh you put a nice 200 foot antenna tower outside your house and you got a 30-foot yagi that's fantastic i bet you can talk all over the world yeah sure can only problem is i've just created a gigantic magnet for lightning right and so what are you going to do and you know what the answer to that is unplug your stuff that's the sure-fired way to make sure that your stuff doesn't get taken out of by lightning and oh by the way that's not even really a sure-fired way because even the stuff that you can't disconnect like you know the antenna and the cabling still runs the risk of having problems so it's there is no guarantee when it comes to mother nature i've seen lightning arresters and the little things that you supposedly put let me tell you something if you think sticking a you know a, a piece of 12 gauge wire into the ground is going to shunt thousands of volts of electricity you're dreaming now on to this jewel question. This I thought was really interesting because it, on the surface, it seems like a legitimate question. When you're when you're purchasing at UPS, what are you looking to prevent? How many jewels, how much energy over time can be expended in this UPS? What are you looking for? I'll be honest with you. I've sold a lot of UPSs in, over the over my, my career as an IT guy. I've never once had anybody ask about jewels. Have people ask all the time about battery life. Have t- people ask all the time about Volt amps, how what the capacity of the UPS is, never really had anybody ask about joules. Like convert one to the other because you're you're talking about energy over time, but the, I I just haven't answered that question. Steve, have you come across that? Nope. Uh, I it has been literal years since I've worried about the joules, um, and I only did that on surge protectors. Honestly, not even the UPSs. Mm-hmm. Just, like you, I was just like, well, UPS and the battery is going to protect me, right? In theory. <laughs> Also, there's another attack vector here that a lot of people don't consider. Mm. Um, that's your network equipment. You get a power surge that comes through your switch, and it will go out yeah. to the entire world through the Ethernet cables uh-huh. and your toast. You know, I still wonder. I had the, the power surge, and one of the things, it, it took out one of my switches. 
or I still am kind of batting around if something didn't go wonky with my access points because they've, they've been okay like they work but it just seems like the range has been significantly decreased since that event and I don't really know what to think of it um, so what I would tell you Sean is as far as looking I would pick out a UPS not so much based on jewels but based on how long do you need your equipment to run and how much energy you're going to drive or draw so you might look at how much energy you're consuming and the and so if you have like a if you have like a uh if it's like a Dell server, you can log into the perk or not perk, excuse me, the IDRAC. If it's HP log into the ILO, they will often tell you what how much energy you're consuming. Get a rough idea there. I tend to try to overshoot by about fifty percent. So if I think I'm gonna draw, you know, like let's say seven hundred and fifty watts, I'll buy a fifteen hundred watt UPS and my red line in the sand is eighty percent. So if I start approaching 80% of, of the, of, of, of my, um, available capacity, uh, then I bail. The other thing to pay attention to, and I've watched this by people more than once, there is a big difference sometimes between the amount of energy you use as your sustaining equipment and the amount of energy you use when equipment powers up. So I would at least run a test where you power up the server and have all, you know, 90 of those spinning rust drive motors all kick up at one time and start kicking back EMF as you're getting the, the, the semi truck rolling down the interstate, so to speak. There's a tremendous amount of energy that's expended there. It may be different. It may be lower to maintain, but that initial on ramp, that initial surge might be more than you expect. Anything else? Anything else we're missing there, Steve? Probably lots, but I don't have anything right now. <laughs> if it doesn't answer your question, if you have additional thoughts, right back in live at AskNoahShow.com. Of course, you're always welcome to join us live by calling 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at AskNoahShow.com. And of course, you can join us in our interactive mumble room. And we'd love to take your question live on the air. Kevin writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, I'm trying to ditch Discord and use something more open source. My main concern is noise cancellation. How can I configure it correctly? I do a lot of gaming with a friend, so I don't want to hear, I don't want him to hear my keyboard or my mouse. I've already tried to use the noise suppression, but it seems that it's not working for me. I'm running Fedora 38 and I was using Guidebit to run a mumble server for a few hours. Thanks in advance, Kevin. So I can only answer this question the way that we have chosen to solve this problem. So if you apply the Unix philosophy, the idea of you, a thing does one thing and it does it really well. If you take that, the implementation of that is you use the individual tools and then connect them all together. Now, open source works for us here because typically these tools are going to work together. What you're describing, your situation, if I woke up in your shoes, I'd be looking at Mumble. Mumble is a fantastic voice client. I've used Mumble off and on since 2012, 2013. And there was a period of time in my life where some of my best friends in the world were connected via Mumble and I would get home at night from work and I would put my headset on and I would get into whatever geek project I was doing and Mumble would be running in the background. And it was like a 24 seven connection of party of my friends over the internet, all powered by open source software. So I don't have enough good things to say about it that way. As far as noise suppression, it has a ton of features built in. You can turn them on. You can turn them off. You can manually adjust it. I personally go for push to talk. So I'll have it configured to where I just push my left control key and that acts as a push to talk for the mic and acts kind of like a walkie talkie or a radio. And I found that to be really effective. Um, and so it's just going to provide. And the other thing is it's using Opus. So you're going to get just stellar quality 
audio using Mumble, and it's designed to run in the background and be unobtrusive and out of your way. The issue becomes Discord is popular in part because of the network effect. There's a bunch of people on it. But the other thing that Discord admittedly does very well is the ability to jump between text channels, voice channels, and video channels. And I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know of an open source solution that today, as it's implemented, works the same way that Discord does. That said, there are some things that are very close. So Mumble, I would tell you, all day long, every day, voice channels work great. Keyboard shortcuts to jump between voice channels so you can go into the, you know, your I'm silent here versus I want to be in this channel. All that part works great. There is chat, but it's very much a distant second. It's kind of like an add-on hack where you can type something and somebody's in Mumble, they'll see it, but it's not, it's not really designed to be used that way. If you're looking for a chat platform first, I'm going to recommend Element. Element is going to work great for doing chats. The voice, the video is not exactly there yet. Now it's getting really, really good. And if you want to demo it and see if it would fit your use case, head over to call.element.io. They started with a Jitsi integration. Again, another fantastic piece of open source software. And again, if you're looking for something simple to get the job done, click on a link, join a conference. Jitsi is the way to go all day long, every day. Problem with Jitsi is, again, not really designed for a piece of software running in the background as I'm doing gaming or other tasks. And I just want the ability to, when I press a key on my keyboard, to immediately and instantaneously connect me with the bi-directional voice channel to a friend. Element Call allows you to jump into a voice chat, jump into a, a, a an audio call, and it does it re- very well. That's the replacement of Jitsi, which is what Element was previously using. They did that because their original thought was, hey, Jitsi uses XMPP underneath the hood to do all of the signaling. So if we pipe that out and pipe in all of the matrix goodness to handle the signaling and the calling and encrypt all of that stuff, that'll be great didn't end up working out. They ended up starting over. That's where Element Call was born. So it is available at call.element.io. You can play with it. You can try it. You can see if it meets your needs. But understand that will eventually become the way that voice and video calls are being done in Element. And I'm told it has landed in Element X, although I've not personally used it. So that would kind of be where I would start and then report back as you run into problems or address them as you come up. Steve, I know you, uh, you, you don't, you're not a person that spends copious amounts of time online, but you have used Discord and you've used some of the other open source alternatives. Have you found there to be a, a distinct lacking of open source software to do the, I want to jump in a channel and, and hang out with my friends? Not really, but I haven't, I don't have any kind of specialized needs. Like mm. you normally describe yourself as the Walmart of Linux users. I yes. say I'm that for like, like kind of chat stuff like it just needs to work i'm not i have kids i don't think no any amount of noise suppression is going to stop (laughs) you from hearing my kids wailing on each other Uh Um, now i could be wrong but but because of that i just expect you to hear those sort of things and if you got cherry blues cherry blues are going to cherry blue so let me ask you this you have some experience with nextcloud and that's another really popular open source alternative have you used nextcloud talk um and if so what do you think I used it briefly. I definitely haven't used it in the last two hub iterations. So it's been a little while. It was it was fine. Um, what I liked about it was being able to generate a link that I could send to people that didn't have to have a login and everybody could hop on and, and chat. Yeah. Did that a few times. It worked. Um, I have no major complaints except for 
there isn't an app for the phone, which is what people like. Mm-hmm. I don't care, but people look for an app. And when you send them a web link, they're like, well, how do I do this on my phone? Sort of. You click it on your phone. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I would say I would say Nextcloud is a good way to go. One of the things that you brought up that I thought was of great interest, Steve, is you talk about Nextcloud not being an out-of-the-box solution that you just pick up and set down, which is the conclusion you might arrive if you went over to Nextcloud's site and were just following their documentation. You took a slightly different approach. You said, here's the technology that Nextcloud provides. It's all based off of open-source technologies. I, as a system administrator, know exactly how I would implement each one of those. So I'm going to follow my best practices for each one of those technologies. And it turns out you get a better at NextCloud experience than most people do. Well, part of that is just thinking through some of the technology that's used. Like you can absolutely stand up NextCloud in a snap or whatever and have it work. In my estimation, I don't work for NextCloud. I've never seen any of the internal documentation or anything like that. But in my estimation... Um, this style is meant to demo or showcase like, here's how you stand it up. Look at like, you can take a poke at it and see how good it is and stuff like that. But in my estimation, it's not really meant for production use with, because as with every software that I've ever interacted with, there's the default configuration. And then there's the, I suppose, production level thing. And Mm -hmm. so in, in this case, it is basically there's a bunch of stuff that I, I learned over the years from admitting websites and stuff like that in previous jobs that you that just make good sense for for PHP applications, like swapping out the SQLite database and putting an accelerator in there and using fast CGI. And like there's a bunch of things that you can do in order to help along the underlying framework that you're supporting. It doesn't even have to be PHP. That's the rule if you're running Django, if you're running you know, the Ruby on Rails built-in stuff, anything like that, it's good enough for like a dev type environment. But if you really want to make it fly, you have to put some thought into how is it running in the back end? Where are my bottlenecks going to be? How do I, and how do I tune these sort of things? Penguin Prince in the chat room says, I need some help. I have a nonprofit. They're running Arch of all things. I'm looking at putting them on Ubuntu, but I was wondering if Linux Mint LMDE would be a good mission critical thing. So, Steve, you have a generic office user and or generic computer user. What distro are you reaching for? I get that's there isn't enough to go on from this. Honestly, Mm. my first instinct was uh, I'd put rel on it and not because I work there. Mm -hmm. But uh, so just a little if you'll. Permit me a little tangent. Please. Over the weekend, I need... So I had a kernel panic on my VM server, one of my uh, libvirt hosts. It happens. It doesn't happen very often. In fact, it was so shocking that my wife thought that the internet was down when she couldn't get to the wiki because the wiki never goes down, (laughs) right? It's solid. So I went in. I was like, oh, it probably needs updates. And I did the apt update. Oh, wait. It doesn't get updates anymore because it... You know, it's on 1804 and I don't have the extended support and blah, blah, blah. So I had to work through the process of kind of resuscitating this thing and doing a do release upgrade, which died halfway through. So then I had to end up futzing around with I was able to get life back into it. So I'll give them that. Right. There's there's plenty of community support. But all of that to say is if you forget about it 
and you just need it to do a thing, the five-year support can kind of end up sneaking up on you without you even realizing it. Hmm. Whereas uh, one of the things with RHEL is it it's 10 years and then some if if you really want to talk about it. Like you can you can continue to use it and it'll get like critical, critical security fixes and stuff like that. And it's likely that at 10 years, you probably will be changing out the hardware as opposed to five years where it's still serving its purpose. But all that said, um, really, it depends on the use case. So I've been liking to deploy. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I like to deploy immutable operating systems for people like my sister-in-law and stuff like that who are remote from me quite a ways. They can get their job done. They install the flat packs via, you know, the the nice little stores or whatever, and away you go. I'm I'm less a fan of, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm less a fan of going with something like Linux Mint these mm. days. I am too. I I have my I have a I have a number of security concerns with Linux Mint, and so I, I would be hesitant to put that in a business. But here's what I so I think Red Hat's a great way to go. The other thing that I think Red Hat gets you is you can go become a supported workstation for like less than two hundred bucks. And then you can ask Red Hat questions. They're not going to be, you know, your IT service provider, but they'll be able to answer some system administration questions should you have them. Although they, it's sold as a self-support thing, so be aware of that. But at least it gives you an on-ramp to support and has some availability there. So I really like that. The other thing is it's undeniable. That's what it's designed for. It's designed to be a, a, a business workstation. So you have all that going for you. If I was going to pick something else, I might, if I woke up in your shoes, consider Linux Mate or Ubuntu Mate. And here's why. So Wimpy designed Ubuntu Mate for his friends and family and largely has put in a tremendous amount of polish that just guides the user towards having a very great experience. So when I think of distros that I can reach for and hand to anybody under the sun and have them use it, Ubuntu Mate is almost top of the list because you can have it set up to look like Windows. You can have it like with the cinnamon desktop, you can have it set up to look like Mac OS. You can have it set up to look like old unity. Um, it just depends on what the preference of the user is. And then again, you add some of that polish that, that Wimpy put in there. I think it makes for a really great distro. So I might encourage you to give you that a shot, but you let me know what ends up working for you and which direction you'd go. I'd love to hear. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of October 8th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. OpenSSH 9.5 is out. Python 3.12 has been released. Krita 5.2 is out. The ebook reader Calibre 6.28 is out. VLC 3.0.19 with integrated support for NVIDIA's super resolution has been released and also includes improved AV1 HDR support. The open source doll Ardor has announced version 8.0. Wayfire, a modular, extensible Wayland compositor with 3DFX similar to what Compix was for X, has been released and is at version 0.8. The Tails project has released version 5.18. Linux Mint 21.2, codenamed Edge, is out. The Debian project has released 12.2, Bookworm, with 117 bug fixes and 52 security updates. And Proton 8.0-4 comes out with performance updates and support for more Windows games. In open source AI news, the race to create AI assistants that help humans write code is heating up. Tabby ML, built by two ex-Googlers, has secured $3.2 million in seed funding 
to work on its open source code generator. AMD has acquired an AI software company called Node AI to bolster their open source portfolio. A recent research paper found that an open source AI system using retrieval augmentation can outperform proprietary chatbot models like OpenAI's GPT-3. The paper published on October 4th by NVIDIA researchers compares different techniques for handling long context in large language models. In security news, a newly discovered set of critical vulnerabilities in a machine learning model framework known as TorchServe could allow cyber attackers a way to completely subvert artificial intelligence models for a range of bad outcomes. The bugs show that AI applications are equally as susceptible to open source bugs as any other application, the researchers noted. The bugs affect Amazon and Google's machine learning services, among many others. A high severity vulnerability for Curl is going to be announced on October 11th. Qualls has discovered a nasty security hole dubbed Looney Tunables in the glibc library. This means that almost all Linux distributions are vulnerable. The Qualls Threat Research Unit were able to exploit this vulnerability on the default installations of Fedora 37, 38, Ubuntu 2204 and 2304, and Debian 12 and 13. Most distros have already rolled out patches, so be sure to update as soon as you can. And according to its annual State of the Software Supply Chain report, Sonatype has said that open source supply chain attacks have tripled in a year. And lastly, Kevin Backhouse and Ilya Lipnitsky announce a single-click remote code execution vulnerability for GNOME that utilizes libq. I don't have any particular affinity or love for Apple or their products or their services. However, I do have an affinity for sustainable technology. And one of the things that is, of course, frustrating to anybody that owns any piece of hardware is when there's planned obsolescence. Well, there is a project called the Open Core Legacy Patcher. And this is a piece of software put together by a team, the first to formally offer support for the recently released Mac OS 14. So if you have a later generation Mac and you want to install Mac OS 14 Sonoma, no problem. It officially supports all Macs created after 2018 or so. Well, the OCLP project will allow you to install macOS Sonoma on Macs that go back all the way to 2007 and 2008. Yeah, it's like over 10 years ago. So I, we point this out for a couple of reasons. So the first is, you should be aware that when you when Apple told you that you couldn't upgrade your Mac OS version past a certain point, they were lying to you. You absolutely could. They just chose not to allow you for insert reasons here. The other part is, once again, the open source community is bailing out the proprietary community to allow you to leverage your hardware to its full potential instead of throwing it in the in file 13 after a couple of years, just because a company decides it's in their own best interest for you to upgrade your hardware. So Steve, I know you don't have any Macs kicking around, but this is a cool project, isn't it? I always like to see a reduction of e-waste for hardware that it, it makes sense. Like there's one thing to be said for keeping an old machine around that is just sucking down the power. But a lot of these, especially laptops and stuff like that, while not particularly speedy, are usually fairly easy on power, and I'd like to see people who can use them uh, continue to get use out of them. Yeah, the other the other part that occurs to me is not everybody can afford a new computer. So, like, it's great to say, yeah, the latest version is out and just go ahead and upgrade. Well, that's fine, 
but what happens if that's not in my budget? What if I didn't plan on buying a new computer? So now I just live without all of the security updates and all of the latest operating system features because reasons, because a company arbitrarily tells me you can't install it. How about you let me try to install it? If I don't like the experience, I'll go back or then I'll buy a new computer. But to arbitrarily stop you from installing, just it, it, it seems like we've planned to fail before we ever got off the ground. And thank God for projects like this that allow you to leverage open source technology. So we'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can find them at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's the Open Core Legacy Patch available on GitHub for macOS. Last week, we told you about the Raspberry Pi 5 announcement um, coming at the, available, uh, at the end of October. Again, to refresh your memory, Broadcom BCM 2712 chip, 2.4 gigahertz quad-core processor, also has 512 kilobytes per cache of L2 cache, as well as a 2 megabyte shared L3 cache, and a video core V2 GPU capable of supporting OpenGL ES 3.1 and Vulkan 1.2 graphics. So, super excited to hear about the new Raspberry Pi. Every time one's released, I get excited, and they have absolutely cemented their place in history as a game changer in the hardware world, because what was possible before the Raspberry Pi came out and what is possible now is like night and day. Apart from that, Raspberry Pi inspired a whole bunch of other hardware manufacturers to develop similar and like devices, some of which are actually in a lot of ways better than the Raspberry Pi. But with the new Raspberry Pi and the new price point, what we've seen is a consistent trek upwards where we started with $25 for a computer, everything you need to use a computer in $25. And slowly we've skated away from that to now you're looking at almost $100 in order to be able to get the latest Raspberry Pi set up to where you could actually use it. So, Steve, do you think as we as you look at what has come out for the Raspberry Pi, do you think they've kind of lost their way? I guess they might have redefined what their way was. You know, it used to be that the Raspberry Pi was a thing that you could buy and then give to your kid because if he blew it up, it was 25 bucks and oh, well, you know, right. it was everybody had. Sure, the, the power supplies were slightly flaky, but everybody had a, a USB cable that, that could power the Pi if you absolutely needed to. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you're talking about 60 to $80 just for the thing and then a special Pi, like a special uh, power adapter, potentially. Well, that's um, Type-C, isn't it? It is. It is. But if you need a little bit extra grunt, you need to have a power brick. And maybe mm-hmm. you have it, maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. Um. With the newest Pi 5, I have read that active cooling is not exactly a must, but it's getting pretty close, which adds to the cost, which probably means that you need a case for it. And uh, they definitely, the Raspberry 4s used to get hot enough that you didn't want to touch them. Mm-hmm. Like I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give that to my seven-year-old. Um, so, I mean, at the point where you're talking, adding these things in, maybe you're at $100, maybe you're at $120, depending on what you've added to it. Mm -hmm. And that's a long cry from the $25 that it used to be. What other devices are out there that compete with the Pi that you look at and say, if I was to spend $100 on Thing, it wouldn't be maybe a Raspberry Pi 5 today, it would be Thing. I like the Odroids, but I've been hearing good things about B-Link 
and all both of those are x86 boards they do admittedly run slightly more like the the odroid start at 120 give or take and then you have to add ram and a a hard drive so with with the pi 5 you still have to add a hard drive the ram comes with it so there's there's that but at the point where you're getting into the reasonable price range like that kind of price range I probably would lean more towards an x86 box that you can get for the price because it's probably going to be better performant and it definitely is going to have better software availability. I'm inclined to agree. The other thing is, uh, well, I, I would say this, where I like Raspberry Pis and where I still like Raspberry Pis and where I will still probably use the Raspberry Pi 5 is where you have one-off very specific implementation. So for example, one of the things that we use the heck out of Pies for is Pi Display Serve, the ability to bring in a bunch of camera feeds, multiplex them across the display, and then spit it out. Now, could that be done with x86? Sure. But they make cases for the Raspberry Pi that have the appropriate HDMI outputs and visa mounts so that you can at- attach to the back of the computer. The software, as it's currently written, compiles on ARM. So you'd have to find somebody to either that makes a a comparable piece of software or you'd have to port it out. And so far as I understand it, we tried one time to see if there was an easy way to get it to run on x86 because we had a client that wanted to repurpose a laptop and it was going to be more work than we were able to take on. So it's not that it couldn't be done. It just isn't yet. And then the other thing is the community around the pies. You find a lot of people that have specific accessories or have particular projects that they're doing. And so oftentimes you can kind of pick up. So the studio clock that runs here that keeps me, or at least tries to keep me on time is a project put together by a dude who works in the radio industry. And he built this entire thing on a pie. And so it was just kind of nice to be able to go buy the same hardware that he had, pick up his project, drop it onto the same piece of hardware. And thus a studio clock appears inside of the studio. So those kinds of one-off projects, I think pies continue to, and will continue to have a place in, I'm inclined to agree with you as far as the experimental fun hobby part of it. You can have a $25 computer that's kicking around. It's like, what's that for? I don't know. It's a $25 computer kicking around. You're not going to do that when you start getting into the hundreds of dollars. Or if you add an Argon one case and a proper power supply and an SD card and all the things. Now we're now we're well north of, of $100. Well, now I'm probably not having th- those kicking around. I'm probably only purchasing them when I need them. Yeah. And the other thing that we've seen in the time that the since the pies come out is we've seen an explosion of smaller board sensor boards like arduinos have always been around but mm-hmm. i'm thinking specifically about the esp boards and stuff yeah. like that and so the the market that raspberry pi was dabbling in in terms of exposing the gpio pins and stuff like that it's still there okay i want to be clear about that however a hundred dollars versus three dollars for an esp8266 or if you want the one with the bluetooth it might be seven dollars or something like that so the um if you're talking about i just want to experiment with you know little sensor these little things can run python and have a python interpreter like MicroPython and stuff like that on them and so now i'm thinking why do I need the Raspberry Pi Hmm. for those sorts of tasks, right? And so it seems like things are nipping at the high end and things have been coming out, not directly trying to compete with with the Raspberry Pi, but there are now options kind of nipping at the low end. Absolutely. Tiny in the Geek Lab, which you can join at geeklab.ninja, posts a link to the Zima board. Have Have you played with this or seen it? I have not. So... Uh, the the Zima board, they call it like the hackable single board server. So it's the idea that it's it's designed to be a single board, but it's designed to be a server. 
for creators. And one of the things that I caught my attention right away off the bat is it has two NICs. So we've looked at AltaSpeed a couple of different times about like, how could we build that into like a mini file server, a mini backup server, a mini point of presence device, those sorts of things. And it's ideally suited to be something like a router. The only thing I don't like about it is it looks very hacky, right? There's no case around it. And so you'd have to purchase that separately, but 120 bucks, x86 based little hackable server comes with dual NICs. It's a pretty cool little board. I mean, I'm all for hacky anyway, so that doesn't bother me. (laughs) Intel is selling their product line to Asus. So this is end of an era. Intel is discontinuing the NUC product line. They're no longer going to manufacture it. Now, take you back a couple of years, well, more than that. A few years ago when Intel released the NUCs, the idea was that Intel kind of looked around and they went, you know, every laptop puts their own little sticker on it and their own little brand and puts their own little way to design the aesthetics of the laptop. And really every desktop is kind of going the same route. But if you take all of those apart and look on the inside, you know what you have? An Intel board and an Intel processor. And we're doing all of that. So instead of going to all of these manufacturers and buying their little flavor of what we're selling, what if we just sold a computer as a bare bones thing? You pick out your hard drive, you pick out your RAM, we make the device as small as we can reasonably get it. We'll offer it everything from a core uh, Intel cell around all the way up to the, I think it was like the, the Skull Canyon and such had like dedicated GPUs and, and, and all the things in Thunderbolt. We'll offer all of that as a line. And they did for years and it was wildly successful. And people like me used them for things, everything from servers to media centers to daily desktop drivers. Intel Nooks have been a stable for just a ton of things. So I would have been devastated to see this line go by the wayside, and it's not going to. Instead, Asus is going to continue to carry the torch. So Asus has officially completed the signing ceremony with Intel, marking a significant milestone in the tech world. Now, basically what they're going to do is Intel's going to hand over all of the product lines to Asus, and Asus will continue to to carry it on. So the company began taking orders for the NUC 10th generation and 13th generation on September 1st, marking the start of this new era under the new business agreement. Asus says that they're committed to ensuring a smooth transition for existing NUC customers, as well as providing them with the best possible service for the future. Their commitment, along with the Asus customer service, is a co-winning principle, which is centered on a win-win situation for both the company and its customers, Asus said. I have to tell you, I have had nothing but positive interaction with Asus. Every product I've ever bought from them has been stellar, has been top-notch, and I think their their support has been fantastic to the point that I was working with an organization and we built a number of machines and put the machines into production, and I, I don't remember who made the, the motherboards, but it wasn't Asus, and started to have problems, started to have problems, kind of questioned things, and, and, and myself and one other person went, man, feel like if we had Asus boards, we wouldn't be having these problems right now. And we went back and we repurchased all of the, rebuilt the same machines with Asus boards, left everything else in there, put them all in, assembled them, plugged them in, powered them up, flawless ever since. So, and that's been my experience every time I've built a machine with Asus. So if there was another company other than Intel, and if it's going to be somewhere other than in the U.S., Taiwanese-based Asus is not a bad way to go. Steve, I know you are not, I mean, you're kind of an Asus fan. You're rocking their displays at your at your place. Yeah, you know what? I've had the same experience that you have going back years. It used to be that uh, 
you have to worry about what you were putting into your machine from the Linux drivers kind of perspective. And I can remember in, in the early 2000s, Asus put out a PDF of the boards that were supported under Linux and which ones. And I, I found that it, PDF and I stored it and <laughs> I, I kind of referred to that. And basically, it basically amounted to any any motherboard that I actually wanted to buy anyways. So mm-hmm. um, I I have nothing but really good things to say about them. Some of my oldest computers, are, I have a computer from, I don't know, 2007 or something like that that's running on an Asus board that is still chugging along. Frameworks has released a new uh, AMD variant of their laptop. So the company finally added an AMD Ryzen option to the repair-friendly portable. If you've not been paying attention to Framework, these guys have been doing a fantastic job to make computers sustainable. So the idea here is it's a completely modular, upgradable, user-serviceable laptop. So you buy it off the bat, and it comes with however it is you wanted. You can choose down to the ports on the computer what you would like. And they sell the ports as modules. So you slide the modules into the base and that, so you can choose. I want all type C. I want all type A. I want two USB-C and one type A and one display port and one HDMI and so on and so forth. You're able to customize however it is you like. Up until recently, they had only offered it with an Intel variant. Well, they've come out with, so a couple things are changing. So the, the new 16 inch version is going to feature a, a dedicated GPU. So that will be available as well as a upgrade to the Intel units plus this new AMD variant. So they came out, I think, like 2020, 2021, somewhere in there. And people have been just thrilled with them. I was a little skeptical at first, if I'm honest. I thought, what good is a sustainable, self-repairable laptop if it uses modules that are only made by one company? Like that, that, that doesn't seem terribly repairable or friendly to me. I was mistaken. Um, as I've talked to people that have had these devices and tried to and, and, and tried to use them, first of all, the parts that they can keep standardized, they keep standardized. The parts that they can't keep standardized, yes, they do. You have to purchase it from them, but they'll provide you all of the specifications and such if you wanted to go do something elsewhere. And so uh, I read a couple of reviews on the AMD laptop. They're thinking, I believe the availability, they're looking uh, late Q4. So it might be a little bit before they're actually available, before you can actually get your hands on one. But the people that have the review unit say that they're it's fantastic. The other thing is that it gives you everything to fit this new AMD board with the same connector. So the beautiful thing about that and where framework is absolutely proving my my skepticism wrong, you can drop the new AMD board into the old framework laptop. So far as I understand it and you, you simply swap parts out. Um, I also came across in researching the AMD variant, a company, Cooler Master, makes a desktop case for your framework components. So if you have an older framework laptop and you say to yourself, self, I'm going to go buy the new AMD variant. Great. You know what you could do? You buy the new AMD variant, take the motherboard out of your old laptop, plug it into the special case. Bob's your uncle. Now you have a desktop based on framework. As I was going through this and as I was doing this, I inadvertently inspired one of my kids to purchase. They saved up their own money. I didn't buy it for them. They saved up their own money and purchased a framework. Now, they ordered the Intel version of the framework 
but I'm told it's on the way and I'm told I might be able to get my hands on it for a review. So I'll report back. Steve, any interest or thoughts in the in the framework? Is that something that appeals to you or is it too niche? I'm definitely interested from the perspective of like, I like the idea of being able to swap out components and stuff like that. I have yet to be in the market for a new laptop, really. Like my, mm. my current one's seven years old and I still don't even, until something actually goes on it, I'll probably continue running it into the ground. So currently not really looking. And I think at the point where you start looking, that's when you kind of become more interested. Yeah, a hundred percent. I one one of the things that spoke out as I was having this conversation with my kids, and you know, they said I want to buy this, and I said, well, what are you trying to get out of a computer? And the answer I got back was, I want a computer that I can invest in one time, that I can take good care of, and that I can maintain myself. So when a part breaks, I can order a replacement part and put it in there. Now there are some places that that have come close to that and that offer some repairability, but largely, guys and gals, the Computer industry is going the other direction. They, they're they soldering RAM. And now I've seen a couple instances where they stay out of the RAM and the storage into the computer. So if a part goes out, you're up a creek without a, with, without a paddle. Chris DeLuca in the chat room says, wasn't there a project that you were building with Alan Jude, FreeNAS or production OBS machine? Yes, they were production OBS machines for uh, Jupiter Broadcasting. Good memory. The music in our ears means we're out of time. Hey, I thank you for joining us. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. The best way to consume the Ask No Show is live. Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can call, you can join the Mumble Room, or you can interact with us via the chat room at geeklab.ninja. Hey, that chat room, it functions 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even when we're not on the air. Join there, ask your questions, participate in the geekiness that is the Geek Lab. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoshow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.